This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Ten twenty nine Peachtree Road. Today it's a dance club called Ravine with an exterior painted black. It's across the street from a Lowe's hotel, and the building looks out of place, with all the shiny new buildings popping up in Midtown Atlanta. I know this because I walk right by Ten Twenty Nine Peachtree every day on my way into the office. Yet I didn't realize the significance of the place until I started to dig deeper into this case. Now I look over at the parking lot every day, always thinking about that night. Back in September 1973, it was called The Strip, where the pimps, drug pushers, and prostitutes hung out. It was also the location of a peep show business called Vendavision. Big Bill Scarborough had waited for his friend, Jimmy Mays, that hot summer night. Mays still had a few customers viewing his peep shows, so Big Bill grabbed a slice across the street at Franco's while he waited. At pizza. Around midnight, Jimmy and Big Bill walked together to the parking lot. Uh, this was going to be some sort of easy racket. Man, this ain't no easy racket. This is a hustle. You know what I'm saying? You dig what I'm saying, Jack? Yes, sir. There's right consequences on. to everything we do in life. If you swim with the sharks, you're bound to get bit. You know what I'm saying, Jack? <laughs> I can dig it, man. I can dig it, brother. I can dig I'm it. I'm telling you, man. And said goodnight. <laughs> well, listen, I'm going to go catch me some shut I'll see you tomorrow, okay? All right, now, see you tomorrow. Jimmy's Ford Econoline van was just a few spots away from Big Bill's. It was a hot, steamy night so they both rolled down their windows. Jimmy cranked up his van. Big Bill said the explosion sounded like a Roman candle. Then another one hit. It must have been the gas tank exploding. Police and fire arrived quickly, and Big Bill saw pieces all around him of the van and of his friend. Bill Scarborough, Big Bill, he's called. He has worked for Thevis and for Jimmy Mays. He was a few feet away when Mays was blown up in his van. He said, there were pieces all around me. Jimmy Mays was an electronics expert, learning his trade in the Air Force. He had worked on peep show machines for Thevis, but quit in August 1970, and a year and a half later, went into business himself. Roger Dean Underhill was part owner of Cinematics. He was his business making the peep shows. And he needed help, so he hired Jimmy Mays on the side. 
giving Mays a percentage of what he made every month. Underhill saw Mays with machines on the west side, the colored part of town. He thought it was a chance to control Mays. At first, he didn't tell Phoebus he hired Mays, but eventually he told him about it. Phoebus said, don't do it, but Underhill did it anyway because Mays worked hard. Besides, Roger was the one putting up the money. There was some bad blood between Thevis and Mays. When Thevis would get a new car, Mays wanted one. Same with a new suit. Things went south when Thevis brought in some outside people, taking away half of Underhill's ownership in cinematics and giving him nothing in return. Roger was not only getting half of what he used to get each month, and so too was Jimmy Mays. Underhill said Thevis ordered Mays killed in December of 1972. It was at Thevis's home at a company Christmas party. Underhill said Mays and Thevis hated each other. Thevis had squeezed Mays out of a business deal, and Mays had gone out on his own as a competitor. Mays would go into a rage, and spittle would drool out of his mouth and down his chin. Underhill said he had seen it with his own eyes. He told Thevis he better watch himself. He had heard Mays say he was going to take his Browning 9mm and put it in his chest and pull it 14 times. Thevis was uneasy about Mays, and he wanted Underhill to take care of him. So... Underhill and another Bill, Bill Mahar, started keeping a watch on Mays down at 1029 Peachtree. Phoebus gave Underhill a gun, a five-shot Smith & Wesson special. One rainy night, Underhill went there just before closing time and caught Mays on the back stairs. Underhill pulled the hammer back on the gun, but just couldn't shoot him. He said he was just not built that way. Underhill claimed Thevis thought Mays would kill him if Thevis didn't kill Mays first. Underhill says he tried to shoot Mays himself, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. So he got another Thevis associate. Just one month earlier, Thevis had landed in the hospital, struggling with his injuries from the motorcycle accident. Things were dire, as Thevis had been close to death. Still stuck in his hospital bed, Thevis now realized he had the perfect alibi if he was going to have Mays killed. Since the Christmas party in 1972, Underhill had many opportunities to take care of Mays. But he told Thevis he couldn't do it. Thevis grew impatient and told him to have Mahar finish the job instead. Thevis frequently talked of murdering another competitor, Jimmy Mays, and that when Thevis was in an Atlanta hospital after a motorcycle accident in 1973, he gave Walters $3,500. The money was for Roger Underhill to buy supplies. The next day, Jimmy Mays was blown up in his van, and Underhill presented Thevis with a piece of bone he was planning to turn into a paperweight. That's right, a paperweight made out of Jimmy Mays' bone and skin. Underhill went to the scene of the bombing that next morning. He found the diamond-studded wristwatch in the parking lot that he had bought for Mays. The watch was a reward for Jimmy working so hard. He found a piece of bone about the size of a wooden matchstick laying near a fence and a gold tiger pin and skin. Joanne Thebus was with her husband at the hospital. She said Underhill came in and was talking about Jimmy being killed and he seemed pleased by it, which she thought was strange. He had an envelope he was trying to show them with pieces of skin he had gotten off a wall. It was Jimmy Mays. Joanne was startled and shocked. She thought it was weird. This was just the beginning of rough-and-tumble times Mike Phoebus found himself right in the middle of. 
Thevis had built Sound Pit Studios down on Simpson Street, but he wanted more parking, and he needed to get rid of three abandoned houses to make room for the lot. One on Simpson Street in Atlanta. Thevis wanted a house there burned down to collect insurance money. He tore two of the houses down and sent a team, including Underhill, to burn down the remaining house. Then he filed a false claim to get the insurance money. Like the arson fire in Louisville, this one didn't go great either. Thevis was irritated, calling it a shitty job. But that wasn't the end of the fire setting. The other was inside a Fayetteville, North Carolina bookstore. Underhill said Thevis wanted and ordered it destroyed because it was competition. Thevis already owned an adult bookstore a half mile away. A month before the fire, Thevis told Herman Womack, the owner of the gutted business, there was only room for one bookstore in Fayetteville and that Womack should either sell out or close down. Womack refused. Thevis wanted everyone to know he was the king of his territory. But Thevis became more and more concerned about being sent off to prison, a reality that included him being away from his family. On November 3, 1974, the Atlanta Constitution published the feature The Abdictation of a Pornography King in the always-thick version of their Sunday newspaper. And it's all there. Overhead shots of the Thebus estate. The family posing for a shot on the bridge in the backyard. Exclusive views inside the elegance that was Lionsgate. But something was different that day. Thebus sat on a couch in his den, just two days removed from another operation from the motorcycle accident. This time, it was a tendon transplant. And he was bitter about the fact that the city never really wanted the estate as a school for gifted children. He never expected the city would want a gift from a pornographer. And he was also bitter about ever having faced obscenity charges in the first place. He said the government has no right to tell anyone what he can or cannot read. The government wanted him gone on obscenity charges. How could they send this man, injured so terribly, to prison? The government said they could, and they kept pushing. And, in a highly unusual move, Thevis had someone with him that day during the interview. His name was Jeff Lee. Jeff was Mike's assistant, an A&R guy working at GRC. Lee had a great reputation in the business, and he worked with Sammy Johns, the biggest artist on Thevis' label. Lee spoke up. They filleted him like a fish, in reference to Thebus's operations. It also got weird. During the interview, Thebus said he believed he had been in the recording business before, maybe in a past life. It's strange, he said, but I know, for instance, that I've been in the recording business before. I've taken to it well, with no background or training in the field. Ask Jeff Lee. I'm not the producer he is, but I have an ear for what's the exactly right sound. I man the mixer in the recording sessions, and I do it well. Lee said his boss was an old pro. That Friday, just five days after the publication of the article, Jeff Lee was found dead in his home. Two shots to the head from a small caliber pistol. Thevis and his lawyers showed up at the scene while detectives looked for clues. Thevis and Lee's girlfriend were both questioned, but no charges were filed. What was the motive for this murder, and why did it happen just five days after the big Sunday story in the newspaper? Authorities took another suspect into custody, 
one that was connected with the so-called Dixie Mafia. The story and the investigation quickly faded into the background. No one knew for sure what was going on, but Sammy Johns was devastated that his friend and producer was gone. Johns wrote a song about his friend, Jeff Lee. He called it Jefferson Lee, and it's only ever been heard as an unreleased demo until now. And the people cry Oh, they cry And his friends all cry Oh, they cry when he died You and me, Jefferson Lee What a team, what a winning combination I wrote my songs with heart And you'd finish them with brain And then we'd talk In optimistic contemplation Now I'm alone without a song But the memory Of your kindness Will help me get along All of this craziness felt like it was straight out of a mob movie. The territorial disputes, the cold-blooded killings, the henchmen, the vengeance and revenge. The first Godfather movie came out in 1972, a cultural sensation that changed everything we thought we knew about mobsters. Was Thevis simply acting like a gangster, like some sort of mob boss? Or was there a deeper connection with organized crime? The Atlanta Police Department had the exact same suspicions. In 1974, the Intelligence Division published a secret 45-page report entitled Organized Crime, Control of Pornography. The report is full of charts, showing Thevis's control of 10 porn firms and 11 legitimate businesses, including his record companies, and his ownership of 350 acres at the current site of Epcot Center in Orlando. Atlanta police overheard a 1968 conversation between Thevis and Robert D.B. DiBernardo at a Las Vegas porn convention. The report said Thevis was bragging about owning 90% of the sex film vending machines in the U.S., D.B. said to Thevis, Don't forget, Mike, you manage the machines. The family is in charge. Larry Ravine and others knew who D.B. was. The Gambinos in New York City, that area of their illicit businesses was run by a guy by the name of, uh, they called him D.B., and he was in charge of all the porno. And it's interesting because everybody in the, the mafia looked down on him because he was the guy that was in charge of porno. I mean, they'd take the money, but they were very judgmental of, of people. So D.B., and he was a nice guy. I mean, he was, some of these guys are like, you know, regular people, and you don't figure them for mafia people. And that's the way D.B. was. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. My father's name was Martin Joel Hodes, and he was bigger than life. When he walked into a room, everybody knew that Marty was there. He was the life of the party. And he was also a mean son of a bitch when nobody was around. He was very smart. He was very ballsy. He was dangerous and violent. But he was my dad. This is Ramola Hodes. Like Tony Thebus, she grew up in the shadow of her father and his adult entertainment empire. Marty Hodes was known as the King of the Peeps in Times Square. Their family had many run-ins with the mob when Ramola and her siblings grew up in the 1970s. This was right in the beginning. I was 12, and my brother was 6, and he doesn't come home from school on time. And as we're starting to get, my mother's starting to get or whatever, a little worried, he walks into the house with ice cream all over him and a note. We're, we're thinking of you, Marty. My mother freaked. And my father's like, take it easy. I know these guys. Marty, what's going on? What's happening? Because I don't know that she knew a lot of stuff that was going on. This was in the beginning. And then about six months later, I'm walking to school. I'm just leaving Lawrence Bay Park, crossing the street. And I'm walking. And all of a sudden, I feel something to my right. And there's a black limo. And, you know, there's a driver. And the door is open. There's two men in black suits with a, with a, with a baby doll. And they're shoving the baby doll out towards me. Ramola, your mother said to come pick you up. No, she didn't. My mother isn't, isn't even up. She told you to, to pick me up. And I looked at him and I said, and I don't play with baby doll. I was so mad at him. I don't know why I wasn't nervous. I was not one iota nervous. I was pissed off at him that he thought I played with baby dolls. Don't even think that I'm going to come in that car with you. Nobody told you to pick me up. And I just didn't say another word and just kept walking and walking and walking. And they went away. I never told my parents because I knew my, my mother was so frightened about what happened with my brother. I don't want to scare her. Then when I went to camp, they sent me to fat camp. As I was going into, it was like a dorm. I see a man in a suit like the men in the limo. And he looks me straight in the eye and I knew and I started to scream, and I fainted. Well, they had to tell my parents then, because, of course, but my parents said, okay, it's over. Early on, Marty Hodes parked himself right in the heart of a seedy Times Square, making his name along the way. Yeah, my father, you know, he started off inventing, like, the peep show, taking Popeye out of the peep show, and putting in girls that undressed down to their underwear. And then he started making films. And then he started buying bookstores. Then he had massage parlors. Then he started a film company making the films. So he had quite a lot going on back then. Larry Ravine was also keenly aware of the transformation of Times Square in the 1960s and 70s. 
Well, uh, Times Square historically was the center of New York City, and it eventually became the center of the commercial world, literally. Times Square, it had uh, the glory and it had the gloom and it had the, you know, down and out. It had the grit and the glitz. But Marty went into the live sex shows. That became a big thing. A lot of the X-rated talent was working the sex shows, too. Everything I had read indicated that the mob had a huge influence on pornography. How was Marty Hodas able to survive with the New York crime families so tied into the porn business? When my father had his jukebox route, the mob was very involved in that too. So there was a place where there was a jukebox and somebody else moved the jukebox. All I know is that my father came back and he was like, what? And he unplugs that person's jukebox and puts his jukebox there. Back and forth, back and forth, my father throws the jukebox down the stairs. And it's Joe Colombo's jukebox. And my father had no idea about a Joe Colombo or whatever. He's like, screw this. Joe Colombo was the boss of the Colombo crime family, one of the five families of La Cosa Nostra in New York City. He was not someone to be messed with. So he's driving down the Bell Parkway and bullet goes through the... So my father has a sit down with this guy. And he was like, holy smokes, I had no idea who you were. I thought you were some little wise guy. So my father says he laughed. He says, boy, you ballsy. I'm getting the spot. My father's like, take the spot, take the spot. And I think Joe gave him a hundred bucks or something like that. Now, so that's my father's first run in. And I remember he used to come home and he used to pace back and forth. They're going to have to kill me before I give them any money. They're going to have to kill me before I give them a dime. That's what he used to say. Marty Hodes did have to have a sit down with some of the mob figures in the area, though. So my father had to sit down. He says, look, I'm not giving you a dime because they did want him to pay him off. Okay? I'm not giving you a dime. What I will do is I'll teach you how to run porn. I'll teach you how to open a store. You buy your machines from me, you buy your films from me, you get your toys from me, and I will help you build your porn business. That's what he did. And I asked my brother about this, and he goes, Ramola, um, Alex and I were in a restaurant once, and there was one of the wise guys there or whatever, and we were talking to him. And they said, you have no idea how much your father is respected because he wouldn't give in, and he found a way around it. Marty Hodes tried to keep the mob out of his business for as long as he could. Now, when he first started getting successful with it, his kid came home with a note pinned to his coat that said, you shouldn't let your kid wander around by himself. And that was the mafia's way of saying, you know, we want our cut. That's how they did business. You know, they forced their way into whatever business they were interested in by threats. Marty, um, he had resisted it for a long time, but when his kid came home, you know, with that note on him, he knew it was time that he had to pay up, and he he paid up like everybody else, you know, because this was perfect mafia stuff. Even though her father continued to walk a tightrope with both law enforcement and the mob, Ramola finally understood why he kept going. I get my father out of jail, so we go to pick him up. I'm sitting in the back. My father gets in the car. And I'm like, Dad, why? Dude, you're so smart, Daddy. You're so smart. You could do anything. Why are you doing this? And he turns around and he said, Ramola, 
I make $20,000 a week. And I'm doing it for my family. But when I heard he makes $20,000 a week in 19... You know, I was like, there's no way he's leaving this. In 1972, the New York Daily News published a five-part expose on HOTUS. HOTUS was described as the king of porno, a boss of a 12-corporation conglomerate. I was convinced that the territories of the adult peep show business were very much like the territories of the mafia, that the bosses didn't and wouldn't work together. As I dug deeper, I discovered that the New York operation that Thevis and Underhill had partnered with was run by none other than Martin Hodas and a man named Max Golden. Thevis and Hodas had been working together. I also discovered that Nat Balin had been selling machines to Hodas, and just like Thevis, the two had disagreements. Hodas told Balin he was coming to Louisville with Golden to settle a dispute. Balin, anticipating the meeting, hit a tape recorder in the room. At one point, Balin even thought it might have been Hodas that tried to burn down his warehouse. This news of Thevis and Hodas working together was a stunner. This was the group that owned Cinematics. Like the five crime families, the peep show business was divided into territories. But did they work together or against each other? Mike Thevis ran the South, but other players laid their claim elsewhere. Ruben Sturman, the Walt Disney of porn, ran his operation out of Cleveland, Ohio. He was the biggest player, but he kept a low profile. An FBI report indicated that Sturman engaged in strong-armed shakedowns of other dealers, distributors, and suppliers, particularly on the West Coast. Sturman has accomplished almost a total takeover with the assistance of Robert DiBernardo. Here again, Sturman and DB were helping each other. This surprised me. Besides Sturman, Thevis, and DiBernardo, the other bosses included Mickey Zafferano in New York and Harry Money out of Michigan. I asked Tony Thebus if he knew any of these figures and if they worked with his father. The only individual that I met up there on a couple occasions was D.B.D. Bernardo, who I later found out was a part of the Gambino crime family in New York. Why was D.B. there? Today it's clear to me why he was there. He was involved with my dad in the bookstore business, in the pornography business. There's no other reason for him to be there. A guy from New York just happens upon Atlanta. Are you serious? Uh, but D.B. was a nice guy who gifted my brother a horse, a pony at the time, and very nice. Once my dad went to prison, there was zero people coming up to that house that weren't invited for just family picnics and barbecues. And again, it, the majority of the people that came up in the business were from the music business, the legitimate side of the world. I have no evidence from what I've read. In fact, from what I've read, he was not involved with the New York crime families. It's very possible that D.B. DiBernardo, Robert DiBernardo, they called him D.B., was just a friend of his that he met in the, in the pornography business. I don't know. He claims he never had anything to do with it. He did tell me, frankly, that they tried to muscle him in many, many times to come in with, into the industry. But he flat out denied he had anything to do with him. Oh, yeah, there are hundreds of bookstores. But, you know, D.B. DiBernardo was, was killed by John Gotti. So go back to why was Thevis involved with D.B. and 
subsequently murdered by John Gotti before Gotti was even the head of the Gambino crime family. That's all I know about that. I, I know nothing other than that. Through an anonymous source, I learned that the Atlanta Police Department was not the only one interested in Thebus's involvement with the Mafia. The FBI had been tracking Thebus for years and was keenly aware of his actions and his potential connections with the Mafia. The report contains hundreds of pages of their findings, starting back in 1967. In 1970, FBI Special Agent John Darko reported that Thebus was looking to collect past due accounts in the San Francisco area. He employed two men, attired in 1930s-style clothing, wearing wide fedora-brimmed hats with blue bands, large black overcoats, and suspenders while smoking long cigars. Thebus had the men carry violin cases and accompany him on his collection of overdue payments. The FBI reported that Thebus allegedly received excellent results in collecting his accounts that day. The FBI reports are a fascinating read, full of detailed information collected from locations all over the country. I found memos summarizing the activity of the agency, some of them addressed to Mr. Felt. That's Mark Felt, who would later be known as Deep Throat, the secret source for Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward in the investigation into the Watergate cover-up and based on the 1972 pornographic movie of the same name. Back in 1969... FBI special agents were talking to sources across the country, trying to find out if Thebus was backed financially by the New York mobsters and definitely connected with La Cosa Nostra. This news was coming from the Los Angeles division of the FBI, where Thebus had his West Coast operation. Though the reports are heavily redacted, one thing is clear. DB's name is all over the report. The Gambino crime family demanded that 25% of Thebus's book and magazine business be given to Carlo Gambino in 1970. The FBI found out that DB, Thebus, and Thebus's LA man even had plane tickets for a two-week trip to Europe together, visiting London, Paris, and Athens. Though Thebus didn't like the constant flow of media articles that tried to tie him to the mob, he did enjoy telling tales of how he had his way with various mafiosos that tried to push him around. He said, The media was painting a vivid picture of me as some sort of mafia kingpin. You know, Mike Thebus has ties to the underworld and all that. Thebus received word that Atori Zappi, the right-hand man to Mafia head Carlo Gambino, was headed back to New York from Florida and was making a stop in Atlanta. Zappi wanted to meet with Thebus at the airport. Zappi comes to visit. He's an Italian mobster representing one of the five families to get their cut. Now, whether Thebus was paying them, I have no idea. Supposedly, he was there to reinforce that. And so Thevis had his right-hand man semi-surreptitiously, but enough in the open, taking photographs of them to scare the Italian mobster off. Roger Underhill showed up in jeans and started taking photos of Thevis, Zappi, and the aides for both men. Zappi assumed it was the FBI and quickly departed. Thevis had outsmarted the mob again. Uh, did he have a relationship with them? I don't know. Did he get seed money from them? 
I don't know. I've been around a lot of these guys. Never ever. This, the same way he was at 16, breaking and entering. The key to the business is doing, the money is in doing what's illegal. The money is not in what's legal. As soon as they change the line, you go one step further. And that's what people will pay for. And the other part of it is we know how he enforced his business. Yeah, you can't be a conventional businessman in, in that sort of unconventional business. First of all, you had to be one of the things he would tell people he would enlist to open a bookstore with peep shows. You are going to be arrested. I mean, that was the deal. So you have to be willing to be arrested. You have to be this lot of cash profit to, make, to be made. So other people are going to want to get into the business. You have to be tough in terms of protecting your turf. So by definition, he's going to be a rugged character. and You have to be willing to enforce your criminal uh, territory. Oh, in my Los Angeles days, uh, Mickey Cohen was this way. I mean, always roaming to uh, nightclubs to talk to the gossip columnists. Okay, what's the counterpoint to that? Are hoodlums who decide there's no percentage in waving your arms and saying, look at me. There's a guy public may never really know about, Tony Accardo. Some, a lot of people don't. Was the head of the Chicago mob for many years. He was actually likely one of the gunmen in the Valentine's Day Massacre, rode ahead the Chicago mob, spent one day, one night of his life in prison, died living in a golf course community in Palm Springs, and he never waved his arms and said, look at me. So there's, there's a long history of those who wave their arms and like the rags to riches scenario, the uh, Horatio Alger notion, you just do it on the other side of the law. All those early mob movies were about those sort of characters, but the theme is always the degree to which you need to make a show of being the big shot is going to bring you down. So there's a big risk to what he, he wanted to do. Anonymity probably serves you better. A friend told Hustler magazine in 1976 that when he says he doesn't want to be known as the porno kingpin anymore, Mike really means it. All that bullshit about being a criminal and being mafia has hurt him more than he admits. He thinks of himself as a great businessman. That's his ego trip. Yeah, the, the, the personalities of these people were like they were out of central casting. The thing that I have tried all these years tried to pin down or get an idea of what it was, was if you're Mike Thevis, why was he so petty? You say, what is it? This amount of money, that old added money came by your happiness. And it's always been my uh, contention that, that it's not the money, it's the power. So these guys, all of them, D.B., Butchie Pirano, Mike Thevis, Ruben Sturman, they wielded a lot of power. And I think the hubris kicked in, and they saw themselves as like being untouchable. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hope, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself, Jasmine Cross, and Stephen Warner with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. 
Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. The Old Days Are Gone, performed by Law and written by Steve Acker. Originally released in 1975 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Chevy Van, performed and written by Sammy Johns. Originally released in 1973 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Jefferson Lee, performed and written by Sammy Johns. Previously unreleased. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit GangsterHouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets, On the Market, Rookie Real Estate, or Money Podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.